Okay, I'm pulling out of my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, so the last two podcasts, I've been talking about cards from Zendikar. And I think I got up through K, so I'm not yet done. Um, so one of the things I decided, by the way, is um, people seem to really enjoy the card stories. Zendikar is a very popular set, so I picked a lot of cards to talk about. Um, this won't be as long as Pharaoh's, but it, it, uh, I'm guessing this is going to be about four podcasts. Uh, maybe five, but I'm going to try to get it done in four. So anyway, let's get on to L, Landbind Ritual. So Landbind Ritual is a sorcery. costs three white and a white, and you gain two life per plane. So why do I bring this one up? Uh, well, I bring up stuff when I, I, I remember things I want to talk about. So um, this was a cycle. Uh, there was a cycle of cards that were all in Uncommon, and they all uh, were spells that did something uh, and counted the number of basic land you had. Uh, so let me talk about why, why we made this. Um, and I think this got added in during development. I don't think we had it in design. Um, one of the things design did do was we wanted to push a monocolored agenda uh, in that we had just followed Shards of Alara. Shards of Alara was very much um, about multicolor. And so we like to shift the pendulum, swing the pendulum, as you say. Um, when I talk about a pendulum, by the way, I'm always talking about, like, you ever see... Uh, uh, hanging on a rope over a sand pit makes a fun design. That's the kind of pendulum I'm talking about. Um, and that magic, metaphorically, is a pendulum, and that what we want to do is always push it in a different direction. And that the reason people play... People play magic a long time. The average player plays over nine years now. Why does someone play over nine years? That's, and that, by the way, for those that don't know games, that's insane. That's a long time. Uh, and the reason is, is I think magic keeps reinventing itself. You know, that at some time you might get bored of a normal game because you just, you've done everything that you normally do and you just kind of get bored. But magic just keeps changing. And so the reason you don't get bored is, well, on some level, each year it's like a different game from the year before. You know, or, or every time a set comes out, it shifts. And so one of the things we're very conscious of when we're making blocks is saying, what did we do last block? Well, let's make sure we do something different. So last block was all about multicolor, you know, and this block was like, well... You know, not that we can't have some synergies with Last Block and not that you can't play more than one color, but you know what? We're going to give you some things that allow you to play monocolor. And we allow you to even draft monocolor. And so uh, this Uncommon Cycle was something to kind of tempt you that says, okay, if you play monocolor, this is pretty strong, and it's probably going to float to you because unless there's two people playing the same monocolor deck, you'll get this card most likely because you'll value it way more than anybody else at the table. So anyway... Um, this cycle was done as a way to help encourage that. There's a lot of other things we did to encourage it, um, but there was clearly a, a monocolor agenda at hand in the set. Next, Lava Ball Trap, another trap. So it costs six red and a red. It's an instant trap. Uh, if opponent has two lands enter the battlefield in one turn, you instead of paying six red red, you can play three red red. And then what it does is it destroys two lands and it does four damage to all creatures. Uh, so the idea was, I talked about, I've been talking all about all these different ways you can get lands into play. You know, all these different rampant growthing things. And so, one of the things that's neat is we gave you a lot of tools to get multiple lands in play at one turn. That's something that the set enables you to do. Well, if we're going to do traps, part of what traps wanted to be, um, so I talked a little bit about the making of the traps last time, but I, I didn't talk philoso- philosophically about the making of traps. The goal for traps was, we wanted it to be something where your opponent did something a little out of the ordinary. Um, it didn't want to be like, oh, you played a creature trapped. Well, you play creatures all the time. You know? And so we wanted to say to people, as you learn the traps, you're like, well, there's certain things you can do in this environment that 
could come back to haunt you. And one was playing two lands on a turn. Now, there's plenty of reasons to play two land on a turn, so people are encouraged to do so. And this trap is a rare thing. It's not, not something that shows up much. But it was a nice little tension that occasionally, when your opponent goes, ha-ha, I get my second land, you go, ha-ha, lava ball trap. I also implied last time I talked about it that um, the lava ball trap, the, the traps were free. They're not free. There's a few ones that are free. What traps are is they're cheaper. Um, a few of them are so cheap that they're free. But uh, this one, for example, you save three mana. So instead of being 8 mana, it's 5 mana. And there's a pretty big difference between 5 and 8 mana. Because um, one of the things that happens is you don't acquire land at the same rate later in the game. Like, you draw 7 cards opening up, and you have some number of land there, and you'll mulligan it to make sure you get some land. But then the later lands come at a rate much slower than that. So while you might play your first, second, third lands on your first, second, third turn, uh, your 8th land is not happening on your 8th turn. And so there is a big gap between five and eight, more so, more so than it would seem. It, it, in some ways, it's more than just three mana because it's many, many turns. And so if you catch your opponent un- unawares, you get to cast a spell much faster. Okay, next, Lorthos the Tidemaker. I'm very proud. This, this is my design. Uh, I'm very proud of Lorthos. So what happened was, I think we decided, I'm trying to remember how this happened, is... Um, I think we get notes from creative about what legendary creatures there are. And so in the legendary, in the notes, they said, oh, there's a legendary octopus. Legendary octopus. Ding, 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 ding. I was very excited. So, in fact, I I don't even know. It might have said, in fact, it might have said something like, legendary sea monster. It could be a leviathan, a whale, or an octopus, something like that. And all I said is, octopus. Ding, 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 ding. So I was, I, I said, legendary octopus. How often do you get a chance to make a legendary octopus? This, this was my chance. Um, so, okay, so of course he had to be an 8-8. He's an octopus. That was clear. Um, and then I wanted him to have some octopus-themed ability. So the original ability I had was he came into play, and he just locked down eight things, and as long as he was in play, they were locked down. Uh, that was a little too brutal. Uh, and so it changed into the attack trigger, which is now if he attacks, you can spend eight. And if you do, you lock down eight things for the turn, and they don't untap next turn. So essentially, you can lock... If you, if you use the eight mana... and eight, Obviously, he costs eight mana. Of course, he costs eight mana. He costs... Um, I, actually, I didn't say his stats. He's five blue, blue, blue for an eight-eight legendary octopus. Um, of, of course, he costs eight, and of course, he's an eight-eight. Uh, there's some aesthetics at hand here. Um, and then he costs eight when you attack, so you can lock things down. So essentially, the cost of getting him out, every turn you can permanently lock down eight things. And I will say, usually locking out eight things will uh, swing the game in your direction. Um, but anyway, I was very happy with him, and uh, he got received really well. Um, I, I'm all for magic being very serious, and I think that most of the time we, we treat the game with utmost serious. But it is fun to be a little goofy from time to time, so I had fun making a legendary octopus. I mean, I guess... I guess with a straight face, he's an octopus. But uh, anyway, I, 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 uh, of my designs in the set, Lorthos is one of my favorites that I did. Next, Lotus Cobra, another card I did. Although, uh, the interesting thing about this card is um, it's what we call parallel design, where I designed this card going from one direction, and Graham Hopkins, uh, who was on the design team, who uh, came in third in the first grade designer search, and now works at Wizards, uh, Graham came in third, by the way, didn't actually get a design internship, but ended up getting an R&D internship, because uh, we, we liked him. Uh, and he ended up working in digital for a while, doing a lot of programming, and now he's back in R&D, uh, still doing programming, but he's working in R&D, and he's one of my favorites. I love having him on design teams, he's really good. 
Um, it is interesting to note, by the way, uh, the great designer search. So Alexis Jansen, um, Ken Nagel, Graham Hopkins, and um, Mark Globus all were in the very first um, uh, great designer search. Um, as was Scott um, Van Essen, by the way, but we'll get him in a second. Uh, all four of them still work at Wizards. Three of them work in R&D. Alexis does not. She works in digital. Uh, but she occasionally works on design teams, and she led the design for Dragon's Maze. Um, and then in GDS2, we had um, Ethan Fleischer, Sean Main, Scott Van Essen, and John Laux, all of which work now in um, R&D. And so out of the two great designer searches, there are seven people who work in R&D and eight who work in the company who came from great designer search, all of which are still there, all of which do an amazing work. So anyway, I, I'm very, very happy with the great designer search. We actually won an eternal award uh, called the INNI for, for innovation that Hasbro gives away. Um, so anyway, the, there will be a third great designer search, not right away. Um, I don't have openings. I do not want to have a great designer search until the person who wins the internship has the right to turn it into a full-time job if they work out. Um, so it's not going to happen this year. I know that. I know the first one was second one was four years after the first one, and it's four years later. So if I was following that pattern, it would be this year, but it is not going to be this year. But we will do one eventually. I, I got to remember. I got to forget how much work it is. Okay, back to Lotus Cobra. So Lotus Cobra is one in the green. It's a two-one snake. And for landfall, it adds one man of any color to your mana pool. So what happened was, Graham and I um, both came at this from a very different direction. Um, I think Graham... Uh, we had both made different landfall creatures. And anyway, it's an interesting story where sometimes people turn things in, and Graham had turned in a card, and I had had a card, and they were really close, and so I morphed them into one card. Um, but it's the kind of thing when people say, who designed what card? It's tricky. Because I could clearly with a straight face say, I designed this card. And Graham with a straight face could say, he designed this card. And the reality is we both did. And it kind of morphed into what was Lotus Cobra. Okay, so the, the controversy of Lotus Cobra, which I will talk about. So Lotus Cobra was a Mythic Rare. Uh, and there was a lot of controversy about Mythic Rare. Uh, because um, most of the time our Mythic Rares are very um, grandiose. You know, they're legendary, they're, they're planeswalkers, they're legendary creatures, or, you know, giant Timmy monsters. Um, and this card was very efficient, but not, not big. Uh, and so there was a big question about what exactly should be Mythic Rare. And, and to be fair, this card, we spent more time debating on whether this card was supposed to be Rare or Mythic Rare than I care to probably admit, because we, we argued about it a long time. Um, and finally what we decided was, and this is the thing that I, I've explained about Mythic Rare, is... Mythic Rare has to have the potential for awesomeness. That you have to be able to see the card and just amazing things could happen. Uh, and, the, and the fact is, Lotus Cobra did allow some crazy shenanigans to happen. It was, it, it was, it, we decided to let it go into Mythic. It, it was very much on the border because it was a card that just really did enable very neat, cool things to happen. And we thought players would be excited and we thought they would be ex excited as a Mythic Rare. Um, we were, I don't know, part wrong in that. I mean, people did like it because the card ended to be very good, but it, we got a lot of grumbling about being Mythic Rare, and like, it's something we're constantly arguing about, about what exactly feels Mythic Rare. We want Mythic Rare to have a certain sense to it that when you see it, you go, ooh, that's a Mythic Rare. Uh, and Lotus Cobra definitely was on the cusp, and so um, I, I want you to know that it wasn't, it wasn't like without thought that it ended up in Mythic Rare. We did spend a lot of time on it, and there was a lot of arguing, and a lot of R&D members thought it should be rare. Um, I might have been among those. <laughs> but anyway, uh, okay, Mark of Mutiny. 
So Mark Immunity is a sorcery for two and a red. Uh, you get to steal a creature, untap and steal a creature. Uh, you, you get it until end of turn, and you put a plus one, plus one counter on it. Um, so this is basically a Threaten variant. Threaten is a, a red spell that you, you steal opponent's creature, untap and attack. Um, Threaten, and, and this ability long ago used to be in blue, and blue does it occasionally. Um, but we decided when we were trying to get, have blue give some stuff up and give some stuff for red, that the idea of temporary stealing felt very red. That, like, you know, I... One of the things that red does is not only does it make emotional decisions, but it has magic that can inspire emotions in others. And so red is really good at making other creatures temporarily kind of act, act out. That, you know, it, it inflames their emotions. They do something in, in a moment of uh, emotional overdrive. And they come to their senses, but, you know, for a moment you, you manage to sort of get them to do what you want. Um, now, this card is interesting because the plus one, plus one counter means I get to steal your card, I can hit you for a little bit more than I normally would, but then I give it back to you and your creature is better. Um, and I like, it's an interesting tension. One of the things we, we worry about in design in general is how much tension do we want on cards? How much do we want to go, hmm, do I want to cast that? And this was interesting because the card was kind of neat. It did some cool stuff. Um, anyway, I, I like the card. I, I, like I said, I, I, I think you want some tension. You just got to be careful how much tension. Next, another... In fact, the most controversial card in the set. What was it? What did it do? Mindless Null. 2B Zombie 2-2. Was it a vanilla? No, no, it was not a vanilla. It had the following ability. Cannot block unless you control a vampire. So in Alpha, there's a card called... What was the card called in Alpha? Scathe Zombies, which was a 2B 2-2 vanilla creature. This card is strictly worse. And when I say strictly worse, I, in fact... Means strictly worse. Uh, there is nothing about, um, I mean, excluding unsets that care about like letters and name. Um, there is no difference between scathe zombies and this card. They're both zombies. They're even the same creature type. Uh, so scathe zombie. Essentially, this is a scathe zombie with downside, and people got really upset. They're like, because scathe zombie is not particularly a good card. That, that's why people got upset. They're like, really? You took a card that's not a good card and made it worse. Now the funny thing was. In this environment, this card wasn't that bad. Especially if you were playing vampires, which was a very common thing to be doing in black. So this card got drafted and got played. And so one of my beliefs, because what often happens is we will make a card. In fact, there's a very famous story. um, In uh, Mirrodin, I made a card. I think it was called Malfunction. And it was you, counter-target artifact. Uh, And so there exists a card called a Null. In fact, if you actually see the set mirrored, and a null got printed and not malfunction, and a null is you counter target um, art- artifact or enchantment, and so malfunction was just strictly strictly worse than a null. A null could could counter an artifact or enchantment, and this card could only counter an artifact. But the thing was, it was an artifact set. It was good. You played it. Not only did you play it, if you were playing blue, you you main decked it in limited. Of course, you played it. And so my point is, here's a card that for sure, for sure, for sure you play, it's okay to make it. It does not matter that it's worse than other cards we've printed. In fact, and this is an important thing, magic has a range of power level. We are going to make cards better and worse than other cards we've made. If we limit ourselves to only being better or worse than certain cards, then we start limiting what we can do. Especially if you make a card that we'll see play. For example, Mindless Null and Malfunction would have. If, 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 it's all play. People played it in Limited. It was actually good enough to see play. People grumbled about it, but, you know, that it is okay to make slightly worse cards, especially if they see play. 
especially if they're actually playable. Um, and that, I know people get a little grumbly about it, um, but, you know, that, that, I, that is okay and acceptable, and that not every magic card has to be, you know... In fact, here's one of the things that's important to understand, which is, it is not a bad thing to have cards that kind of are universally hated. You don't want tons of them, um, but it is kind of fun. To, one of the ways to sort of bond players is to give them shared experiences. And it's okay every once in a while, the shared experiences, they get mad over the same card. And like, like I said, especially a card like this, where it's it actually a playable card. Like, one of the things you've got to learn with this card is to overcome your hate for it and go, oh, maybe I should draft it. Because um, people would say, I'm not playing that card, that's a horrible card. And, and then slowly they learn, like, oh, it's actually not that bad in a mono-black deck, you know, in limited. So, anyway. Um, like I said, controversy. Next is Nisa Ravane. Uh, so, 2GG, two, 2 green and green. She's a Planeswalker. Uh, she started with 2 loyalty. Uh, she had 2 plus 1s. Plus 1, search your library for Nisa's, Nisa's Chosen, which I'll explain in a second. Number 2, plus 1, gain 2 life for each elf you have on your battlefield, your elves. And minus 7, go get any number of elves out of your library, put them in play. Okay, uh, Nisa Chosen, by the way, since she's relevant to this card, is cost green and green for a 2-3, and when it died, instead of going to the graveyard, it goes to the bottom of your library. And that was made to play with this card. So this card, so there's a lot of stuff about Nissa. So Nissa started where we were making Duels of the Planeswalkers, and we wanted to have a cool image for the cover of the box. Um, and so she ended up being, the, the pic, she was an elf, and she was a cute elf, and, you know, it, 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 uh, um, it, it seemed like a nice, a nice image. Uh, and so we said, oh, well, one day we got, we got to make her. People seem to like her. Uh, we've got to make Nyssa. And so when we were at Zendikar, we like, oh, this seems like a good place. Uh, and so we made Nyssa. Um, now the thought of, so this card is interesting as a Planeswalker in that, um, our Planeswalkers are powerful, and this card is powerful, but it is niche It's very, like, it, it is good in an elf deck. It's not good in any other deck. If your deck doesn't have a lot of elves, it is not good. We also did this thing where it tied in with a card. Where in order to play this card, you had to play this one particular... In order to play Nyssa, you really needed to play this card in your deck. Um, and the problem, for example, in Limited is, imagine getting Nyssa in your pool. You get a Mythic Rare, or... A, was she Mythic Rare? They Mythic, yeah, it was Mythic Rare, because obviously I just have a list cover. Um, you get a Mythic Rare, and then you didn't get the common you need to play the card. That's annoying. Um... I like I like experimentation. I'm glad we played around with it. I, I don't ever begrudge us trying things. I think we learned that tying it to a card has some problems, especially in limited. Um, and I don't mind niche planeswalkers. Although it's interesting, um, we do market research both on the card and on the character. And that um, the character did better than the card. The card, because it only fit in a very specific deck, it wasn't you know it wasn't as well thought of as a card that goes in lots of different decks. Um, uh, and so one of the things, uh, I mean, obviously I, I've, I've hinted at this, uh, when we recently released, uh, Funko is making a series of dolls, uh, and, uh, they released, there's six of them in the little, um, I forgot what they call it, the little mini ones with the big heads, uh, and one of them is Nissa Ravane. And people are like, Nissa Ravane? And, and I said on my blog, I said, yeah, we've got some plans for Nissa Ravane. I cannot tell you what those plans are, but we're going to see more of Nissa. Um, and we, uh, we're doing some changes that, I don't, I don't want to anything. There's some fun stuff coming with Nyssa, and for, for fans of Nyssa, uh, Nyssa's coming back. You, you'll have a chance to see Nyssa, and uh, she's going to feature into the story. So, um, anyway, uh, I'm, I like Nyssa. I think she's a cool character. Um, 
And uh, anyway, I should not I should not say any more other than Nissa fans, stay tuned. There is Nissa goodness coming. Okay, next, Obnixilis. Ooh, talking about characters. So Obnixilis the Fallen. So trivia question, why is Obnixilis the Fallen? The Fallen what? Okay, we look at a picture of him, or look at his creature type. He is a legendary demon, 3-3. So, um, so Obnixilis... Uh, so Obnixilis did not start... As, I believe he did not start as a demon. I believe he started as a human uh, who made a deal with the devil or with a demon and ended up becoming a demon. Uh, and then... Why is he fallen? Because he was once a planeswalker back in the day. Uh, and he, during the mending, I believe he lost his spark. And so that's why he's the fallen. He's Omnicolus the fallen. Um, and so uh, he, was, he was another popular character. Um, so his ability was, he had a landfall ability. When, uh, when a land came into play, target player lost three life, and Omnicolus got three plus one plus one counters. So he started on the small side, but he quickly got bigger, and he was quite potent. He was, uh, he was no joke. He was, he was a pretty, uh, pretty cool character, so, um, and, and cool card. But anyway, I, I, uh, and Nicholas, by the way, has gotten quite the following. He's, uh, he's one of those characters that, that people seem to really like. So go up, Nicholas. Okay, next, Obsidian Fireheart. So it costs one red, 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 four mana total. It's an elemental that's a 4-4. Four, four. And then for one red and red, you may put a blaze counter on target land that does not have a blaze counter. And then what a blaze counter does is, during upkeep, it deals one damage to its controller. So during its controller's upkeep, it deals one damage. Um, so what is the flavor exactly of this card? Well, the reminder text makes it crystal clear. Uh, the land continues to burn after Obsidian Fireheart has left the battlefield. So you are lighting their land on fire. Uh, and this flavor, this reminder text has become very popular. Um, two reasons. One is, I think it, I liked the fact that it did flavor work. Like, it's not often reminder text gets to do flavor work. Usually flavor text does flavor work, but we didn't have flavor text. It's too much space. Um, and I like, personally, I mean, if you've seen me in the end set, I, I like us being a little more fast and loose with the reminder text and having some fun. I think this card does a good job of actually explaining what the card does in a way that's flavorful, that helps you understand why it works the way it does. Like, well, the Fireheart lights things on fire. If he leaves, well, guess what? They're still on fire. So, next. Oracle of Moldaya. 3G, 3 in the green, for an Elf Shaman, 2-2. Two, two. Uh, it has three abilities. A, you can play an additional land. Two, you can play the top card of your library revealed. Three, you may pay lands off the top of your library. Okay, so this card is actually three different magic cards squished together. So first, it is Fast Bond. That's a card from Alpha that lets you play an additional land each turn. That was an enchantment for G that was mighty broken. Uh, second is play top card of Revealed. Uh, I think the first card they did that was called Field of Dreams. It was an enchant world from Legends that made all players play with the top card of the Lab Revealed. Although this one, just you play it Revealed. And third, uh, there's a card called Future Sight that allowed you to play... Uh, you played with the top card of your library Revealed and lets you play cards off the top of your library. Um, so the, 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 all three cards in the um, Time Spiral block were named after sets because it was a nostalgia block. So Time Spiral, Planar Chaos, and Future Sight were all magic cards. So anyway, a little, little trivia there. Um, and so this card lets you do Future Sight only for lands. Future Sight lets you do any card. This, this does land. So um, it was a land-based set. This is actually a pretty good card. It got played. It saw lots of play. Um, I, was, I was happy with it. It, it did neat things. Uh, the other cool thing about it was... Anytime, if you remember to not play your land, so you would draw your card and then got to see the top card, um, 
uh, it allowed you a lot of time to help manipulate. And you know, when you could, you played the land off the top of your library, so you got the extra card. So you got the extra card. You know, whatever four percent of the time, whenever, whenever the land was was there, the, the, you have four percent ratio of any top of your library being land. So um, anyway, um, okay. So next we have Orn Reef Survivalist, one and a green human warrior ally. He was a one-one, and when it or any ally came into play, he got a plus one plus one counter. So I talked about this last time. This is one of the fighters I talked about the allies in the last podcast. That what he did is every time an ally came into play, himself or another ally, he got a plus one plus one counter. Because we wanted to tie the, make them all work the same. They all said whenever I or another ally come into play. So the plus one plus one counter was a little weird because that meant that we had to put a number in the lower right hand corner that really didn't reflect what they were. This guy's a grizzly bear. He's one G for two two. But it looks like he's a 1G for a 1-1. And so, while the experienced players got that he was a 2-2, uh, it was a little hard for beginners. That it, it, it made the card look worse. And one of the things that we, we spent a lot of time on, more than you probably want to know, uh, is how much the impact visually the card has. Meaning, when you see it, um, a lot of times, like the gods, for example, in Theros, we worded them in such a way that they got to be creatures, so you thought that they were creatures. Because when we worded them that they weren't creatures... It wasn't clear that they were... It was much, much less clear they were creatures. Also, you couldn't play them as commanders. They wanted to play as commanders. But, but we try very hard to make sure that we do such in such a way that it maximizes how they look. And this card, if it was made by itself, would come into play with a plus one, plus one counter. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Would not come into play with a plus one counter. It would just have an added stat. It would be a 2-2 two, two, and then only grant to other creatures. The only reason we didn't do that was... Whenever we're trying to make cards work the same, sometimes there's some cost to doing that. And one was, well, individually this card doesn't look as cool, but um, for ease of play it works like every other card like it. And so that was important. Next, Pillarfield Ox. 3W, 2-4. Done. Uh, I I bring this card up. It's a vanilla. Uh, I think this is the first time we ever did... I think this is the first time we ever did Pillarfield Pillarfield Ox. This has become... This card has shown up in more things you could possibly imagine. It's the ox that keeps on going. Um, it's a nice, simple card, and, and one of the things that we've realized is, and part of New World Order is, you need to have simple cards. That, you know, if, if every card is just doing lots of things, it gets overwhelming, and that there's a nice mental breather. Even Whether people are aware of it or not, that sometimes you draw a card and it's just vanilla, deep inside, maybe, maybe you're not even aware you do this, you let out a little sigh, like, oh, okay, for one turn, I can just, I, I, I don't have to process so hard this one turn. Um, and, and I know people like to think that they just, you know, load it up, more complexity, more complexity, more complexity. But what I found was, and R&D found this, that when we implied New World Order, that the experienced players, the R&D, these are hardcore, most of them from the Pro Tour, were like, oh, it's nice to have a breather every once in a while, that, you know, having to think constantly is, is hard work, and that, Every once in a while, it's like, I know what this thing does. I play it, I attack with it, or block with it, I know what this thing does. Next, Plated Geopede. So, um, Aaron, from time to time, um, in organized play, we make these giant cards. Uh, we, we, we do this thing called Massive Magic uh, at events where um, people, well, usually like, uh, like Richard Garfield and I did this at uh, the Worlds in Japan where, where we were playing uh, with uh, Scars of Mirrodin. I was, I was uh, Frexians and he was the Mirrodin. Um, we'll do this thing where we play with these giant magic cards, and usually two celebrities, you know, pros or somebody, are playing, and then we get the audience to help, and each card is, is represented by a different audience member. And um, Anyway, we can make these giant cards. We use them for organized play. So Aaron was making some to sort of decorate the pit. 
Uh, and it was around Zendikar, right after Zendikar. So he wanted to make a card to give to me. So he, he gave me Plated Geopede. Um, and the reason he gave me Plated Geopede is um, I had done um, uh, Zendikar was my set. And obviously the biggest part of it was Landfall. And he said, well, let me just give Mark an awesome Landfall card. So he gave me Plated Geopede, which is pretty cool. Um, the funny thing about this card was uh, that when I originally turned this card in, uh, Henry Stern... So what happened was the first part of development was done by Henry Stern, and the second part was led by uh, Devin Lowe. Um, and when I first turned this in, Henry was in charge of the, the set. Um, I turned this in as a, a cycle that all got plus one, plus one. And Henry felt that we could push it a little more, and he changed them to plus two, plus two. And he, that did push them. They were very, very good. Um, Play the GP especially was probably the most constructed... Although the white one, uh, the cat saw constructed. Um, in fact, I, I, most of them probably saw something constructed, but I think the red and white one were the strongest. Or they went in the decks and most likely wanted to have the, the weenie strategies. Um, so, you know, this card, I mean, the, the one thing about Landfall that's interesting is Landfall ended up making a, more aggress- making a more aggressive environment than I had intended. When we made Landfall, our intent wasn't to make things fast. Uh, but cards like um, Play the GP really did pushed toward a very fast environment. And probably if you ask me my one regret about um, Zendikar, I, I don't have a lot of regrets about Zendikar because I'm really happy with how it came out, was I wish the limited environment had been a, a touch slower. I think we pushed things a little too much. Um, and, and like I said, it was a combination not just of the design. I mean, I, I think Landfall pushed it in that direction, but I, I think that uh, we also were aggressive with it. Um, and so... I, I wish Zendikar hadn't been quite as fast. It was a little, a little too fast for my taste. Um, next, Punishing Fire. So Punishing Fire is an instant for one and a red. Uh, it's basically a shock. It does two damage to a creature or player. But it's a little rider. Whenever the opponent gains life, you can pay two life to get it back. So this is a rare card. This is a Build-Around-Me card. It says, okay... Um, well, it, actually, it's both a Build-Around-Me and a Sideboard card. Uh, it's a Sideboard card in that if I go up against a deck that has life gain... Well, this is a nice sideboard card against that because it allows me to continually do damage to them, you know, and maybe I can offset a lot of life gain. Um, if I'm building around it, I could go, oh, well, how can I make my opponent gain life in a way for me to get this back? Um, and there are different ways, depending on the format you're playing, where um, sometimes you give your opponent life because you get a benefit for you giving them life. Sometimes you're giving everybody life. Um, Anyway, there's different ways to build around it. So it's, it's a neat card in that it both is a sideboard card and is a build-around-me card, but I think it's cool. Um, and I like individual cards like this. I mean, this is a good example of a card that eh, doesn't have a lot to do with the environment. Um, I mean, there were things like the lands that gave you life when they came into play and this interacted with them. But, but um, more often than not, that really what I liked about this card, what I, what I like in general is I like stuff making sense for the set it's in. I definitely want to make sure that all the cards that only make sense in this set get made. But it is fun to have fun, cool, random cards that do neat things that aren't super tied. I think sometimes you can be careful about not making everything so tied that you don't have a chance for just fun things to happen. Um, and I think Punishing Fire is one of those things. So, okay. I'm going to do one last card. I'm actually parked, but I'm going to do one last card because um, I'm going to finish off the peas. I'm in the peas. Um, although, actually, I'm over. Okay, maybe I'll have to save it for next time. Um, so next time, I want to start with Pyromancer's Ascension. Uh, the reason I'm not going to do it now is it actually there's a lot to say about it. Uh, so I, I, I talked a little bit about the quest last time. So next time, uh, I'm going to talk about some quests. 
Uh, so anyway, thank you for joining me for part three of Zendikar cards, or Zendikards, if you will. Um, so as always, I very much love talking about magic, and, and especially talking about Zendikar. Uh, but even more, I like making magic. So I gotta go. So I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye-bye.